You're listening to the Crossroads Grace Podcast, a podcast of Crossroads Grace Community Church. To learn more about our gathering times and ways you can get involved, check out our website at crossroadsgrace.org. As we begin today, I want you to ask yourself a question. Maybe if you want to, you could ask the person next to you or uh, give your answer to them if you want. But here's the question. Where do you find meaning in life? Where do you find meaning in life? I mean, just take a second, kind of think about that for a moment. I know it's deep. Hopefully you've had your caffeine this morning. Hopefully you're ready to go. But like, where do you find meaning in life? And it's important that you think about that. Because what is it that brings you significance? What, what is it that brings you worth? What is it that brings you value in this life? And, and if you were to share this with your neighbor, I'm guessing that probably what you would say to each other probably would be different all around this room, that we wouldn't have one universal answer. And, and, and here's what I know, though. What you and I find meaning in really is, is most assuredly not only going to be different, but it's also important because we assign meaning to things throughout our life, um, and we assign meaning to people or to places or things, things that come about in our life. For, for instance, uh, this baseball glove. Um, I've had this baseball glove a long time. It's actually the first baseball glove I ever got. Uh, it is from my grandma in Cincinnati. When I was born, she gave this to me, right? It's not the greatest glove of all time. I'm never going to use it in a game. I'm, it's always going to hang on a, on, a, on a hook somewhere. I'm never going to use it, but it, it's valuable to me because of the person that gave it to me, because of my, my grandma. You, you see, meaning is, has a little bit to do with what something is worth, but really a lot of it is with the significance that it carries with it. That, that's important to kind of consider. But if meaning, can, if, you're, if meaning used in the wrong way can also be really dangerous, if it's applied to the, in the wrong way to the wrong things. Guys, for instance, it's, it's okay for, uh, I, I don't know, for you to have like a super, super nice car, uh, maybe to drive it around, you really love it. But the problem is, is that if that starts to define who you are, then that's really where things have gone off the rails. You know, again, having a nice car, not a bad thing, but when it defines who you are and you get upset, if your car isn't as nice as somebody else's, all of a sudden we're, we're, we're off the grid a little bit. And it's that idea, that last scenario that I just gave you that I think is important and where we we find our world in right now because we live in a world that is starving for meaning, wants to know who it is, what it is, what's it all about, and and, and really it it doesn't, it's not for lack of trying, okay? It's not for lack of trying that the world is trying to find its meaning because we will attach our meaning to all kinds of things. We'll attach our meaning to our work, maybe to the amount of money that we have or relationships that we're in, addictions that we have, status, We'll even associate our meaning with religion. And what we do is we hope that if we have all of, enough of whatever it is, if we can have enough of that stuff, then maybe we'll be fulfilled, maybe we'll be satisfied if we have enough stuff. Except what we find is that even if we do have all those things, if we could garner all those things, bring it all together, have it all together, we still are left hungry and we're left empty inside because we're still looking for something else. We're looking for something else. So, so how should we find meaning? If that's all true, then how should we find meaning? What, what is the right approach to meaning in our life? And, and is, it okay to, like, is it okay to enjoy things? Or do we need to become Amish and like churn our own butter, make our own clothes, and drive around in buggies? Is that the only way that you can find meaning in life? Is that it? Or, or, or maybe a better question is, where can I find the answers to those questions? 
Well, where can I find the answers to the questions about meaning? And, and tucked in the book, uh, in, in the Old Testament, in a book called Ecclesiastes, which is written by King, da- King David's son Solomon, we actually get to hear a few of these answers. Again, Ecclesiastes 1 tells us the words of the teacher, that's Solomon, again, son of David, king of Jerusalem. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to continue to learn more about Solomon as we go here today. But, but while you might think that the wisest man that ever lived, that's, that's Solomon, while you might think that since he's so wise, he would spell out in the clearest of terms what the meaning of life is all about, you might actually be surprised how he comes to the meaning of life, what is meaningful in life, because the way that he comes to meaning is finding out what is meaningless, because he'll say that meaningless, meaningless, go to that next verse for me if you could, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless, And I know what you're thinking. You're reading this and you're like, oh my goodness, Solomon, you are depressing. Like you are sad. Dude, you need to watch some office episodes, have some in and out. You need to chill out, bro, because listen, everything can't be meaningless. And, And what we'll see is as we study this part of the book of Ecclesiastes is that what Solomon speaks about meaning, when he does, what he's really talking about, when we look at meaning, he's really looking at me in my meaning. He's really looking at me within where I'm trying to find meaning. In other words, he's looking at our meaning, meaning in life. How do we look at ourselves in the things in our life, and how does God factor in to those meaning moments? That's really what he's looking at. And what we'll find is that meaning in life is found when our identity is wrapped up in who God says about us. If we don't do that, we are going to find ourselves in meaningless stuff. We're going to be filled with meaningless stuff all around us if we try to find meaning in anything other than God. So so to do that, we are going to continue to look in the book of Ecclesiastes today. So if you have your Bibles with you, maybe your Crossroads apps with you, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, if you want to flip there. Online, if you go ahead and put that that link in there for our Crossroads online guests, we'd love for you to do that. That would be on Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And as you get there... I just want to, to, to welcome you. Like, if you're brand new, I just want to welcome you. If you haven't been here for a hot minute, man, we want to welcome you back. Glad that you're here. And, and I don't know if you're like me, but when I walk into a room and I, I feel like I'm the outsider looking into a conversation, I feel all kinds of awkward. And so we try really hard not to ever make anyone feel that way. So let me pull everybody up to speed on where we're at today. Last week, we kicked off our series with my good friend, Pastor Carl Ramayas, and uh, he was here, and I just am so grateful for his friendship, the time that he spent pouring into us. He's so great. Um, it, it, sadly, Pastor Carl is actually taking a job in Flatirons Church in Colorado, so he won't be with us as much, but I am just so grateful for all that he has done in the time that he was with us. But, but Pastor Carl kicked off the series last week, and he, we were asking ourselves the question of how are we, how's our meaning connected to ourselves, like with me? And what he said last week, I think, was really important. He said there really are four areas of our life as it relates to our meaning that we need to be aware of. Those four areas are the people that we listen to, the pace of life that we keep, the priorities that we have in our life, and the perspective that we have on our life. Those four things, people, pace, priorities, and perspective, they're very practical, right? And I found them really, really important for us to consider as we look at all the pieces that come together for the meaning in our life. And so I'd encourage you to listen to that if you haven't. But as we continue in the book of Ecclesiastes today, in our look, our search for meaning, we come to chapter two. And chapter two is one of those chapters that I think hits close to home for everybody. It's for everybody. And here's why I believe that that's true for us. 
We are coming up to a season in our world where, where we start to think about what we want to get, what we want to get for our friends, our families, our coworkers, our loved ones, whatever it might be, we are coming up to because we are coming up to Christmas time, everybody. Christmas time. Did you know? 76 days until Christmas. Hello. Yeah, I love Christmas so much. Some people are hyperventilating. I am ho, ho, ho. Can't wait. Right? It's going to be amazing. I can't wait. 76 days. But we all want to get those people that we're thinking of, loved ones, family, friends. We always want to get them something that they're going to enjoy, but also sends the message like, hey, I care about you. That dual meaning. But circling around the buzz of the holidays is also this reality that stuff is coming. You know, I mean, lots of stuff. Stuff that will be bought, that will be, un- that will be wrapped, that will be unwrapped, that will be returned later because you didn't like the stuff that somebody gave you. But stuff is coming nonetheless. It is coming. And I always think that it's, a, it's amazing when I think about the amount of stuff that, that I have, like that Team Hunt has. And when I think about that, I remember back six short years ago when we moved from Chicago to California. And what we did is when we were in Chicago, we loaded up two pods. If you've ever experienced pods before, big white box they put on your driveway. They say, shove all your stuff in there, and then they ship it to where you're going. We had two of those. We filled up our stuff, and we shipped it to California, but not even two pods was enough to fill, to just take all the stuff that we had. So we had to rent a U-Haul, and we had to pull it behind my truck all the way across the country because we had so much stuff that it wouldn't fit with the other stuff once we got to get out stuff that we needed when we got here. But, but that's not even like the craziest part. Okay, here's the craziest part. The craziest part is that actually a few months later, after we moved here, we had a garage sale. Yes, yes, you've experienced this, okay? So in October, a couple of months after we moved here, we realized that we, all the stuff that we had moved here, we couldn't fit all the stuff into our new house here in California. So we sold stuff that we had moved across the country now because we don't need it. And to blow your minds even more, picture this, okay? The house that we moved to in, into California was way bigger than the house that we lived in in Chicago. Yes, that's right. We had more stuff in a smaller house and couldn't fit it in a bigger house. Somehow we defied the laws of physics when we were in Chicago, somehow with all of our stuff. So, so why does that matter? I share all of this to state the obvious. That stuff is a big deal in our lives. In most cases, we work at our jobs to buy more stuff. Right? When we get new stuff to our house, we dream about getting more stuff to add to the stuff that we just bought. And then we look across the yard or across the, the drive to our neighbor's house, and we want their stuff to be our stuff. And then we think about the future, and usually the future has more stuff as a part of it. And, and here's, here's the deal with it all. What does stuff really do for us, though? Like, what does it really do for us? Or, or better yet, let, let's really think about this, this, this question today. What does our stuff do to us? What does it do to us? Because there's no doubt that people like to define themselves by what they have. Many people find their meaning in what they have. They will think more highly of themselves when they have more stuff or better stuff, and they will think less highly of themselves when they have less stuff or cheaper stuff. And, And this love affair with stuff is not limited to age, by the way, you should know. Throughout our life, we are constantly battling the stuff syndrome. When you're young, you want whatever Disney has on those commercials between those shows, right? Or if you're super old like me, like you remember the JCPenney's catalog. Anybody remember those? 
You'd open that bad boy up, you'd find it, you'd dog ear it, and then you'd give it to your grandma, hoping that that $9 million of toys that you asked for, some miraculously are going to appear, right? You know, that, that thing. But then you get a little older now, you want the best, you want the best gaming console you possibly can. Then if you're an athlete, goodness gracious, athletes, don't we want the best glove, the best bat, the best equipment to stand out from our other buddies? Then we, became, then we have a family. we got to get the best RV, the best truck, the best houses, you name it, so that the rest of our family thinks that we have it all together. And, and then when you get a little bit older, what do you want? You want the best retirement portfolio so you can get a bunch of stuff compared to the other people that you think that you should have better stuff than they have. And we ascribe our meaning by looking at what we have or what we don't have in life. So what does God think about this? What, what does God think about Everything. What does God think about our stuff? And what is our relationship supposed to be with it? Well, this is where we come to the book of Ecclesiastes today. Okay, book of Ecclesiastes. In this section of Ecclesiastes, we get to see how Solomon goes on a bit of a sociological experiment. He really does. He's going to set out in his life to find out that if he can find meaning in stuff, in things. That's what he's trying to do. And as you'll see, he does not hold back. He gives it everything he has at every turn to try to prove his point. But as we look at his findings of this stuff experiment, what we gain is we gain all of the wisdom that he got from that experiment. And from it, we get a chance to see really three things. We're going to see three things. Three, we're going to see three common assumptions about our stuff today. I would encourage you to write these down, commit them to memory, maybe just write them down, put them in your app if you would. But three common assumptions about our stuff because Solomon thinks that there is a way to find meaning. He wants to find out if there's a way to find meaning in this life with our stuff. But, but then we also get a chance to see the results from his efforts to see if it's really true or not. And here's what I would ask us all today to do. I would ask us, as we approach this, not to look at this as an ancient book written by some ancient guy written in ancient times. Okay, what I want us to do is I want to challenge us including myself, to see if what Solomon wrote back in the 4th century B.C. is actually still applicable in 2021. I just want us to come at it with open and fresh eyes. So let's do that. Let's see what Solomon's first assumption is about our stuff in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Start in verse 1 with me. He says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself both with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what is good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their life. So, so Solomon says, he sets out, his first thing that he wants to do, he wants to see, he wants to see if, if pleasure is a way that he can find meaning. He wants to try to find pleasure, see if pleasure can do this. Now, pleasure is an interesting word. Pleasure in the Hebrew is this word, is simka, simka. Now, now, now simka is, is interesting because it's only used five times in the entire Bible, all of them by Solomon. And Solomon uses simka four times out of the five in the book of Ecclesiastes, but he uses it three times out of the five in this little sep- section of scripture that we'll study today. And, and what simka is, is it's connected with joy and it's connected with jubilation, But what's interesting is that it's reserved for a very specific kind of joy, sensory joy. So simka is sensory joy. In other words, pleasure through experiences is what simka is. 
So what Solomon is trying to see is that if simcha, if sensory joy and all that pleasure that comes with it can bring him something, can simcha bring him what is good? And the word good in the Hebrew is this three-letter word, tov. Tov. Now, tov is used 700 times in the Bible. It's used 700 times in the Bible. It means desirable. It means desirable. So in the Bible, it, when you hear tov, it, it speaks of like the apex of what is good, what is desirable, what is right. So the assumption that we have here that Solomon is trying to make between simcha and, and tov is this. He's saying that pleasing experiences, simcha, will bring me personal meaning, will bring me tov. So personal experience will bring me personal meaning. In, in other words, if I do enough, if I experience enough things, if I have enough stuff, then all it will create enough sensory joy around me to bring the goodness, the tov that I'm looking for. And I will tell you that Solomon tried to do this in every possible way he possibly could. But I'll give you one example. For instance, let's just take eating, for instance. I mean, we all, we all like a good meal, don't we? I mean, I like a good meal. You know, something where, where, where like the, like with the, what's that plastic silverware wrapped in a napkin, you know, that kind of thing, or the waiter doesn't bring it to you on roller skates, you know, like a good, good meal, you know, a nice meal with a menu that isn't like a newspaper at Black Bear Diner, you know, like a real menu, you know, like a good meal, eat, like an experience, because eating is an experience. Well, well, well Solomon he took this whole eating experience thing to a whole new level. And I want you to read. You might have never heard this before. First Kings chapter 4. Just look at, at, at his menu. First Kings chapter 4. Here's his menu. It says, Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of the finest flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep, and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. Now, let, let, let me give you kind of an understanding here, because there's probably some words that you haven't seen before. For instance, this word core is an interesting one. It says there are 30 cores of finest flour, and there are 60 cores of meal. So 30 cores of flour is five and a half tons of flour. Okay, and 60 core is 11 tons of meal. So that is a gluten-free person's personal nightmare right there. You know, just like you are sweating just reading that right now, you know. So Solomon is gluten-full, if you will. He's just getting after it, all right? But beyond this bread fest that Solomon is having, he would probably not be invited to many vegetarians or vegan Christmas parties based on what was next. Because King Solomon, like he was like, he's grubbing on cattle and sheep and goats and deer and gazelles and roebucks, whatever that is, and the, and the choicest fowl, which of course is Chick-fil-A. I mean, that's what that is, right? He's eating everything. He's just going for it. And, and, and keep this in mind. This is, it says, his, his daily provisions. This was the menu for one day. Historians said that this would be able to feed ten to 20,000 people in one day. And, and, and this is just one example. I mean, Solomon was trying to experience the pleasure of eating to the max level to see if this possibly would bring meaning that he was looking for, the meaning in life. But, but before you just chalk this up to like a, a rich guy with a killer metabolism, like just like consider the bigger picture for a moment. Consider the bigger picture. Guys, what he was trying to experience here, we all do this. We all try 
to use pleasurable experiences to try to find meaning in our life. Trips to Disneyland, exotic vacations, skydiving, jumping off of rocks, swimming with dolphins, backstage passes at whatever country music event that you were just at. I mean, and listen to me, nothing is inherently wrong with any of those things, none at all. For crying out loud, Team Hunt, we're gonna go to Disneyland at the end of November. I can't wait, it's gonna be so much stinking fun, okay? So I'm not saying that, but if we think that those things will bring us meaning and the tove and the good that our soul is looking for, we will be completely dissatisfied every time. It's because we are using them for, for something they were never designed to be used for, like, like ever. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. If you've ever had surgery before, um, and, and you wake up from surgery, you know that you are hooked to all kinds of wires and tubes and everything, blood pressure monitors, like you, you name it, you're hooked up to it all. But, but there is this one thing that you're really glad that you're hooked up to. It's this one tube that comes in, and all of a sudden you look next to you, and there's this little button, it looks like something from Jeopardy, okay? It's called a pain pump, okay, like a pain pump. And what happens is it's hooked to pain medication, so when you're feeling like really in pain, you can hit this button like... You like hit the button and it'll give you a shot of pain medication. But, but what they don't tell you is that you only have a certain number of before, like in a certain amount of time. So you can't be like, like, and like, like overdose yourself, right? You only got so many, this pain pump. And, and you're thinking, that's a great thing. But did you know that we actually have like a, like a pleasure pump all the time? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a pleasure pump. It's called Amazon Prime, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's called, it's called Target Drive-By. We, you know, like all, you know, it's called, it, 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 it's seat geeks, right? Right? We just, we just all the time, we just think if I get enough or a little bit more or a little bit, but I just get enough, I'll get enough pleasure in me and the pleasure experiences that it's going to be fantastic, right? So that's what we think. But, but we can't do that. We can't expect experiences to create the meaning that only experiencing God can do. We, we can't do it, which is why Solomon actually uses the fifth time that he uses that word simka. He uses it in Proverbs 21, 17. Look what he says. Whoever loves pleasure will become poor. See, see this is why when we come home from a trip, an epic trip, it, it fades away after a while, and then we have to find something else. If to find something else, to feed, feed the rush, it, it's because pleasure alone makes us poor. So pleasurable experiences won't bring me personal meaning. Well, but let's look at the second assumption that Solomon makes in, uh, about this whole idea of meaning. Look in verses four through, through nine. He'll say this. Solomon says, I undertook great projects I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself, and I am the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. So what we see Solomon say here is the second, second assumption that we see is that he says that if I can build it or buy it 
I will have meaning. If I can build it, if I can buy it, I can have meaning. So Solomon sets out to build and to buy as much as he possibly could and see if he could find the threshold of meaning, if he could meet that threshold. And to fully understand what we're talking about here, I think you need to appreciate the building project, this guy, these, these projects that he took on. I mean, with the money that was at his disposal, too. One specific example would be the temple. Solomon built the temple of God based off his father David's plans that he had given him. The Bible tells us that inside this temple, it was magnificent. Ceiling was 180 feet long, 90 feet wide, 50 feet tall. The highest point on the temple that Solomon built was actually 120 cubits tall, which was 207 feet or 20 stories tall. Solomon would put in in charge 3,300 people in charge of just this project alone to complete it. This was a big, massive project that, that God deserved every bit of it, absolutely. But I tell you all this so you can kind of consider this. It took Solomon seven years to complete that temple project. But do you want to know how long it took him to complete his personal house? 14 years. Now, I mean, what kind of house was that, right? Seven years for the temple of God, 14 for his palatial estate? But, but in order to understand that, we have to have to understand the resources that were at his disposal. He kind of listed a few of those things there. But keep in mind that King Solomon was the son of David, who also was very wealthy to begin with. Let me, let me rephrase this. So Solomon was the richest man history has ever known. How rich? Consider this. It, it, let's look at his portfolio just, just for a second. He had more silver and more gold at his fingertips than anyone ever in history. It's estimated that he would bring in $1.1 billion in our time of silver and gold annually. But on top of that, he also had inherited everything that his father David had done, who regularly received gold and silver from kings of Arabia, from other governors and other people like that. He also taxed his people very heavily, and so he had all that money coming in too. But wait, there's more. Right? So, so Solomon also received tribute money from other countries and other governments and other kingdoms, plus gold and silver and animals. And, and every three years, he would re-up his agreement with the king of Tyree, which would also bring in more gold and more spices and more armor. And, and every year would just get bigger and bigger and bigger. So with inflation, it's no exaggeration to say that he would be worth today trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars by a long shot. No one would ever have more money than him. So Solomon... He built massive things with unlimited resources, and he bought so much stuff that you couldn't even wrap your minds around all the stuff that he had bought. He was, without question, the most powerful, the most influential man in the entire world, but yet it didn't make him have any more meaning. And and maybe as you think about your life, maybe you've been trying to build some meaning in your life too. Maybe, Maybe you are building a home. Maybe it's but maybe it's company, companies. Maybe you're trying to build legacies. Maybe you're trying to build your online following. I don't know. But, but maybe you're trying to buy stuff upon stuff upon stuff that you don't even need and you don't even know where it all is going to go. And, and you do all of that in hopes that at the end of it, that there will be this deep meaning that's going to come out of all these things. Except your heart is going to still want more. And I know that it's very tempting to find meaning in our stuff. Businesses will hire marketing companies and will spend billions upon billions of dollars to convince you and me that if we don't have their product, we are incomplete. 
but yet after we buy their product, they'll continue to remind us that we're incomplete until we have the newest product that they're selling. It's just a vicious cycle. It truly is chasing after the wind to be able to borrow Solomon's words. It's what it is. All of this stuff, all this stuff won't allow us to have any more meaning. In fact, it will only leave us feeling exhausted. Ever felt that way? Just exhausted. But Jesus actually markets something completely different. Jesus would actually tell us this. He would say, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So in the end, building and buying will not have you find any more meaning. Only Jesus will. However, Solomon has one more assumption that he wants to try to, try to make when it comes to our stuff and our meaning. One more assumption. It's found in verse 10 of chapter 2. If you join me there, it says, It says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. This was the reward for all my toil. So the third assumption that we see, he says, having everything will give me everything. There is no other man on the planet that was actually able to deny himself nothing. N nobody. Because Solomon had all the money, all the power, all the resources, which means that he could literally do anything, buy anything, take over anything, anything that he wanted, he could do that at any point. Like Pastor Carl said last weekend, he kind of took my thunder a little bit. I mean, he, could, he had as many wives as he wanted. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Exhausted even just saying that, right? Seven, it's crazy. I mean, he had homes, he had land, he had, he had parties, he had money, he had, he had, you name it, Solomon had it. He had it, he had it all. It said he deprived himself of nothing. He tried to give himself everything, thinking that if he gave himself everything, that he would have everything that he wanted. But yet, despite all of this, this is what Solomon says in verse 11, based on his, his findings of that. It says, yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. In his very own words, Solomon said he denied himself nothing, but yet even with all of that stuff, he said it was meaningless. And here's why that's true then and why it's true now. It's what Jesus tells us in Matthew 18. He would say, Matthew 16, he would say, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? You see, when stuff defines us, it can keep us from finding our meaning that Jesus wants us to have. As Solomon did, we can try to find all of the pleasures in the world by doing and buying and all the stuff that we want, but if we do that, we will miss out on the greatest pleasure in knowing who Jesus is. So, so let me say it this way so maybe you can wrap your minds around it and take this with you today, that, that we could try to have everything this world offers, but we'll miss the greatest gift ever given to the world. We try to have everything this world offers, but if we do that, we'll miss out on the greatest gift the world ever offers. My, my meaning is not found in my stuff. My meaning is found when I'm found in Jesus.
and Jesus alone. So let me close this out with a little bit of an illustration to try to explain this. Um, If you're from California, this California area, and maybe if you're joining us online, you might be from California too, but if you're not, like me, I I learned some things. And uh, there's a place called the Winchester Mansion, okay, Winchester Mansion, better known as Winchester Mystery Mansion, if you will. But I learned a whole lot lot about this. Um, uh, 1884, Sarah Winchester, she purchased this small unfinished property in, in San Jose, California, after she moved from New Haven, Connecticut. And Sarah was the wife of William Winchester, who was the the creator of Winchester Guns, the founder of Winchester Guns. So Sarah inherited a ton of money, tremendous amount of money when her husband passed away. Uh, And so she she used those dollars to to rehab this house, the small house found in San Jose. And Sarah was in a great deal of pain after the death of her, her daughter, Annie. And so she placed all of her grief and all of her energies into rehabbing this house, which is really potentially should be known as the strangest house that was ever built, okay? So she had, she had contractors in this house, and the contractors would work around the clock uh, seven days a week, and they created a seven-story mansion that is so strange that words, words really can't describe this thing. There was no plan. There was no architect. It was only whatever Sarah wanted, they would build it. That was the deal which resulted in rooms being added on to exterior walls, resulting in windows overlooking other rooms, like just crazy stuff. It had multiple staircases in it with different size risers in it, gave them different views of it, and some of the staircases led to nothing, like that was where where it led to, just absolutely nothing. But, But when it was all said and done, the home, when it was finished, had 161 rooms, 47 fireplaces, 10,000 panes of glass, two basements, three elevators, and 13 bathrooms, but only one worked. Yeah. She spared no expense on this place, including having Tiffany and company stained glass windows in this place. Amazing. But did you know something about this seven-story mansion, huge house, palatial estate? Do you know something interesting? That after she died, after Sarah died, and they sold the property, do you want to know how much this property went for? $135,000. That's it. Why? Because it was worthless. She had built so much, but yet it was worthless. It didn't work. And while I realize that Sarah was not well when she was building this home, I want to make that very clear, I do think it's a window into the attempts that we have on our meaning too. Because, I mean, let's really, really think about it. We all, we all are building things all the time. We're building things all the time. Like, for instance, like in our life, like at some point we're like, you know what, I think I need to, I'm going to build a house, um, and then, you know, I need to get married, so I need to get like a, maybe I need to get a ring to, to, to make myself feel better, and then I, you know, I got to buy some stuff for my kids once I have kids, and then I'll need to buy some stuff for maybe their kids eventually, and you know, you're like, okay, well, that, that, that was working, and then you're like, well, you know, I, I, still, I still think there's more, so I need to get a better, maybe I need to get a, a truck, and if I get a truck, then, well, obviously I need to have an RV, and if I have an RV, then I have to have this with it too, and then, um, and then after that, you know, maybe if I can just possibly, I don't know, possibly start to get in better shape, because if I'm going to go hiking all the time, I better be in shape, you know, I can't, can't like, you know, die up there. So anyway, so I get, I get that. I'll get a, maybe a gym membership. And, um, and then when it's all said and done, I'll get maybe a subscription for some better food. Like, hello. And then we'll just get that, you know. And then, I'll, and then eventually, and then if that doesn't work, then I'll hire a trainer to be able to help me out. And, 
And then, you know, and eventually, you know, I just want to make sure that I have something really nice that people think. So I'll just get, like, maybe another house someplace else. And, and so we just keep building and building and building. And we're like, yeah, you know, this is going to do it. And, and, and then all of a sudden we realize that I, I built this thing so tall, I, I, I can't see anything. I've, I've, I've built up my life with stuff. And the saddest part is that I can't even see the people that I love anymore. Like we lose sight of our marriages because of stuff. We lose sight of our kids because we're trying to buy more stuff for them. We lose sight of reality because we think that if we have more stuff around us, then somehow, some way, I'm going to be more complete. And we build it higher and deeper and wider, and we get into more and more debt because we think that more stuff is going to make me more happy, so I just keep buying. But when in reality, what we've done is that we've walled ourselves off from what's most important. And then what's the saddest part is that if we call ourselves Christians and deep down we say, you know what, I want to be able to, to grow closer to God through this, we realize that we built our walls so high that we can't even see the cross. We, we can't even see Jesus anymore because we have built it up and we've replaced Jesus with stuff. But isn't it interesting, though, that when Jesus came from heaven to earth to die in our place for our sins, that when it says that he died on the cross and that when it was complete, all of a sudden he tore it all down. He tore it all down. It says that the, the veil was torn from top to bottom to create no barrier between us and God, between us and him. And so, so now we have direct access to Jesus. So, so why in the world would we build up a wall between us and God when Jesus came to tear it down? But why, why would we do that? Why would we say, stuff, you're better than Jesus? Right? Why would we say, you know, why would we say this is more important than my relationship? Why would we say, I need to work an extra shift on a Sunday so I don't go to church so I can buy more stuff and then later be wondering why I feel so disconnected from God? Why is it that stuff seems to get in the way of God when all we have to do is just knock it down? Because we don't need it anymore. We just need Jesus. What if, just crazy, what if Jesus was enough? Just, just for crazy sakes, what if Jesus was enough? What if we didn't have anything else other than him and we could be so satisfied we would be complete? What if that could happen? What if I told you that it already did happen? What if I told you that 2,000 years ago Jesus came from heaven to earth to come in our place for our sins, to die in our place for our sins? to take on a cross that was meant for us, to go in a tomb meant for us, to, to defeat death that was meant for us, to go and ascend to heaven to prepare a place for us. What if all of that was for you and for me so he would say, you don't need anything else other than me? What if that just was true? And what if Satan's greatest trick was to convince us that that wasn't enough and that all of this is what we really need? What if that's what happened? See, my friends, at communion, we get to recenter ourselves on the cross and remind ourselves what Jesus did for us on there. That we don't need stuff, we need a savior. Our stuff will not save us, only our savior will save us. So I don't know how this hits you today. I don't know what you're wrestling with, but I do know this, Jesus loves you so much. And he doesn't value you more because of what you drive. He doesn't think that you're better because of how big your house is. He doesn't, he's not based on any of that. He wants what's inside here. He wants your heart. He wants your soul. He wants your life.
probably remember this, this saying that UPS has. It says what? It says, what can brown do for you? <laughs> Might I just ask you, have you ever considered what Jesus can do for you today? He can save you. He can give you purpose, passion, and meaning. And he can do that for free because he paid the price for you and me. So as we think about this, we take our time of communion, as we worship in just a moment, I pray that we have a, a new relationship with our stuff. Not that it's bad, but that Jesus is better. So consider that as we prepare our hearts now for communion. Father God, we love you. I pray right now that as we hear these words from Ecclesiastes, that I know I was convicted. I know that as I read them, I can read myself in all these texts and know that I am no better than anybody else. But God, I just pray that if we truly believe that Jesus, when you tore the veil from top to bottom by dying on that cross for our sins, that you made direct access to us, to God, because of that, God, that we would embrace that, that we would not build up walls to make barriers between us, but that we would want you intimately as our Lord and Savior with nothing in between. So I pray, Father, as we hear this, as we worship together, as we prepare our hearts for communion, to remember what you did on the cross for us, that we would realize that it's not about a stuff, it's about a Savior. And Jesus, you have done so much for us. God, we love you. We praise your name now. Might these words wash over us and be our anthem to you. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week on the Crossroads Grace podcast. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening from. If you are interested in getting involved in our community or want to find out more information, visit us online at crossroadsgrace.org. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads Grace podcast.